Well, it's Vision Sunday. We have a Vision Sunday every year at the crossing. It's, it's a time when the pastor, me, lays out the vision for the coming year at the church. It's a time when I talk about new initiatives, new programs, exciting plans that are all on the board. It's a time to get everyone excited and stoked for the coming year. It's sort of like what you see before the start of an NFL game, you know, when the coach or the team captain gathers the entire team around them on the sideline just before kickoff in a huge huddle to inject some fire into the team just before they take the field. Kind of like this. So here it is. This year at the Crossing is going to be the greatest year ever. Let me tell you about what's going to be going on around this place. Life groups. We're going to do life groups better than ever before. Ain't nobody going to stop us from filling every group with hungry, excited people who have a weekly opportunity to learn how to love God, love people, and serve the world. Uh Uh-huh, right here. Here's something else. Two words, online service. Other churches are pulling back from their online presence as more people gather. But at the crossing, uh uh-uh, not here. No, we're moving ahead. We're going to put more effort and more resources into making the part of our ministry there more effective than ever before because we have an opportunity, as I see it, as never before. As part of that effort, we have plans to completely renovate the downstairs cafe to do more filming in that area as well as to make it more comfortable and usable for space for additional life groups and weekly men and women's group. You feeling it? Are you getting it? Wednesday night prayer meeting. We're up in our game, people. We're going to be having some preaching along with the praying. That's right. Some Holy Ghost-inspired preaching. So stay tuned for that one. Families, we love families here at The Crossing. We're going to be reaching families and seeing marriages strengthened. In fact, coming September, uh, excuse me, Saturday, October 16th, we're going to have a morning marriage seminar followed by a special speaker on Sunday preaching on that topic, followed by seven straight Sunday nights, seven weeks on teaching on marriage. And kids and teens, we haven't forgotten you either. Oh, no. We're going to be moving forward fast and hard with new initiatives. Not to mention men's ministries gearing up again. And and they're starting up an additional simulcast for women of the church led by nationally recognized speakers and teachers. And that's just the tip of the iceberg, people. That's it. Okay. I'm done. Now go out and tear the place apart. Okay. See, that's what you're supposed to do on Vision Sunday, to give a grand picture of what will be, of what could, or maybe what even should be. It's altogether right and fitting that we do that, isn't it? After all, don't the scriptures indicate that without a vision, the people perish? It does. But we're living in a strange time in history. We really are. I walked into a store the other day without a mask, and there was this big sign that said, turn around and go back in your car if you don't have a mask on, and hopefully you will still have an old, folded, crusty one that you put in your glove compartment several months ago. Bring it out, and you know what? Put it on, or else you can't get into our store. And I thought we were done with that, but we're not. We thought the kids would be back to normal in school. And that three-year-olds attending preschool wouldn't have to wear a mask for three hours. But they have to. We thought that if enough people got vaccinated or sick and recovered, that we would have reached this herd immunity that we've been hearing so much about since last March. But we haven't. 
And, and, and we thought that by now, our numbers at the crossing at our live Sunday morning service would be back to our pre-pandemic level. But they're not. And I'm supposed to stand here this morning and get you all fired up about what we're going to do this year and how we're going to take new ground and do more things. And <laughs> listen, folks. If there's one verse in the scriptures that we have all come to see in a brand new light in these past 18 months, it's this. You can make many plans, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. As I've observed churches in general and listened to podcasts and read about what is happening in the church in America, I have seen that over the past 18 months, there has been unprecedented strain on relationships, along with an exponential rise in real, true emotional distress. Almost every survey that I've read indicates that many are, are, are leaving the local church. In fact, many are even leaving the faith or saying they are. Even before the pandemic, stories of leaders, one after another, driving their lives off the rails, proliferated. Many churches, especially smaller churches under 100 attendees, which, by the way, compromises about 60% of all churches in America, well, they're closing up in levels that I have never seen before in my lifetime. And one thought keeps coming back to me again and again and again. And here it is. As you continue to think about and work towards announcing God's truth to the world, start thinking about reintroducing it to the church. See, the church needs it. I wonder if what our church doesn't need on this Vision Sunday, more than anything else, is a personal vision of the change that God wants to bring into your life and into my life. A vision of change in me. Because any forward movement of we always starts with me. And this week we're going to be looking at a man whose encounter with God serves as a kind of model for us to take certain action steps that will help us answer the question, what should I do? What do I need to do to change? What will it take to recalibrate and once again get things working right. The man I'm speaking about had by anyone's standard a checkered history. Though it seems he had a genuine faith in the Lord, listen, at most times it was a weak faith. He was a twin, the younger brother by a few, few moments to his brother Esau. Many of you know that I speak of Jacob, the son of Isaac, who was the son of the great patriarch. Abraham. Rebecca, their mother, was told before their birth that she carried two nations in her womb. An analysis of, the, of these two brothers would have kept Freud and Menninger and lots of other psychiatric luminaries busy for a lifetime. When they were born, Esau the older was found to have something stuck on his ankle. It was the hand of his brother Jacob holding tenaciously on, almost saying right from the start, not you, me. I should be born first. It was a sign of things to come. It became apparent as they grew that the two were quite different indeed. Esau. Esau was um, 
you know, he was the kind of guy that's referred to as a man's man. You know what I'm talking about? He was a hunter. He was a brawny, hairy guy who probably started shaving in the ninth grade. Guys, you know, it was always one of those guys that you wanted to be, but you're second year in college and you're doing this and you're saying, when is this going to happen? Esau was the guy in ninth grade. You know who I'm talking about. Think Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. Jacob. Jacob was different. He was quiet. and He liked to stay around the tents. And unlike his dim-witted, passion-driven brother, Jacob was shrewd. The words uh, trickster, cunning even come to my mind when I think of Jacob. So much so that he literally stole from right under his his, uh, brother Esau's unsuspecting nose the family birthright as firstborn, which in ancient times was a really big deal and had to do with rank and had to do with money. Later on, not content with just rank and money, He literally stole the family blessing, which dealt with power and dealt with influence. He was rightly named Jacob, which figuratively means deceiver. Well, the story goes that when the dim-witted brother Esau finally understood what his brother had done to him, he gets mad. In fact, mad enough that he plans to kill him. So Jacob was strenuously advised by his mother to run. Now, far, far away. And so uh, he packs up a couple of things and does just that. He leaves all he knew, that he knew behind. But listen, don't, don't, don't be feeling too sorry for him. Living by his wits and his wheeler-dealer mindset wasn't long before Jacob became successful in the far country and quite, quite wealthy. But you know, life has a way of circling around. The people you thought you left behind, sometimes even the sins we never dealt with, well, they have a way of coming back to remind us of unfinished business sometimes. And so, after many years, having heard from God that it was time to go back home, Jacob prepares all that he accumulated in terms of wives and wealth and wards, children, and begins the journey home. And as he sets out, he's thinking in his mind, It's been a lot of years since I've seen my brother. Boy, was he mad at me when I saw him last. But you know what? It's been so many years. I'm sure by now the bitterness he may have felt towards me has vanished. I hope. The group marches on. Then as he gets near, he sends word ahead to his brother that his return was imminent, just a couple of days away. And the servant comes back to him in Genesis chapter 32 and verse 6. And he says this, Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. And immediately Jacob knew that Esau wasn't dashing across open country to invite him to a grand family reunion complete with brandy and cigars. This scene had all the signs of a man who had been double-crossed, but who also had a long memory, who finally, after so many years, was about to get his pound of flesh. So, Jacob, knowing the dire situation he was in, did what Jacob always did. He devises a plan. 
I've been in tough spots before. Granted, this is a particularly bad crisis, but I just, I just need to think. I just need to think. So he strategically sends ahead of him in groups each of the mothers with their children, thinking that as each wave greets Esau and his men, all presenting him with lavish gifts, it would perhaps pacify his brother and turn down the heat so that, that by the time he reaches him, Jacob, he might spare his life. So he puts the plan into motion, crosses his fingers, and hopes for the best. But what Jacob didn't know was that this crisis precipitated a mighty change that God was going to bring in him. Take a second and just think of the most frightening moment that you've ever had in your life. When was that? You know, last week we saw a video of the most frightening moment of some people's lives soon after planes hit the Twin Towers. Some of the people we saw died minutes later. I couldn't see their faces clearly, and part of me is happy, you know, that I couldn't. But I can imagine the terror that filled their hearts. Jacob was a man filled with the terror of death in his heart. He was a man who was in a state of extreme crisis. But he was also a man who was in desperate need of change in his life, even as old as he was. And here, on this plot of land, his great need for change and the crisis in his life collided. He didn't know it at the time, but his crisis was the opening for a personal change that he desperately needed. Do you hurt right now? Do you, do you hurt? Here's the first thing that you need to know. A new vision from God often is introduced by a time of extreme crisis. God often uses crises and crisis situations in our lives to speak deeply to us, to even at times get our attention. What Jacob needed most was not deliverance from his brother, although he thought that's what he needed most. What he really needed was to be delivered from himself. Sometimes a crisis situation is the precursor to such a change. Maybe the crisis that you are presently experiencing is the thing God will use to change you. And so we read in chapter 32 that after depositing his possessions and his family on one side of the brook Jabbok, he recrossed over... And there, in the silence of a cool, starry night, he waited. Verse 24 mentions something that is critical if Jacob was ever to make the changes necessary to move ahead. It says this, So Jacob was left alone. Once God got his attention, he separated him. He got him alone. You know, there's two things of interest in this passage. One was uh, the brook that God chose to bring the crisis to a head, Jabbok. You know, I, whoever said God doesn't have a sense of humor. You know what Jabbok means? It means he will empty. He will empty. It probably was named many years previously by someone who was going to, you know, empty the stream or divert it maybe for farming purposes, whatever. We don't really know. God at the brook Jabbok 
was going to empty Jacob of himself. He was going to empty him of self-reliance, the vehicle that had carried him along all of his life. But to do that, he had to get him alone. Now, let me hasten to say that it's a good thing to be together. We preach being together. As grateful as I am and have been in this pandemic for our online presence, which I, you know, I've already mentioned before, we're in the process of expanding to reach people we haven't yet met. And, and we are because of the online presence. There's still, listen, there's still no substitute for being together. Being together is really, really important if you're going to grow as a Christian. The Bible seems to indicate that in many places. But at some point, I believe if God is going to confront you deeply, he's going to have to separate you from even your brothers and sisters in the church. Because sometimes they could be a crutch, or even we could use them as, as an excuse not to be together with God so that he could talk to us deeply and direct comments deeply into our lives. One of the chief ways that people avoid uncomfortable conversations, you know this, is simply to avoid them, to avoid the people that you're going to have to address and have uncomfortable conversations with. You know you need to talk to this person, you've known it for a long time, but you arrange it so that even if you're in the same room, you're never too close to them. You always know where they are and you know you go in, you go over here, hey, John, you start talking, you, right? The family's getting together. You say Sorry, I had something, you know, else scheduled. It's been on my calendar for months. Well, maybe just for 10 seconds. We want God, but we don't want him enough to be confronted on a deep, uncomfortable level, even if it promises to bring a fire of intimacy that we have never known before. So we settle for substitutes. We warm ourselves a bit with the singing and the fellowship being radi radiated out from others. That's not too uncomfortable. You're singing to God, but you're, you're singing with a lot of other people too. You're listening to the message, but you can easily deflect the message to the guy sitting next to you. At church, you can be with God's people, but sometimes not be with God himself. But unless and until God gets you alone, you may feel the sting of crisis without getting to the point of it all. You may feel the birth pains, but never deliver the child. The fact of the matter is that many of life's most important issues must be faced alone. Transformation that we need and a renewed vision often begins when we meet God alone. So sometimes he, he lets the crisis roll. Then one night, in the wee hours, he wakes you up. Not to get you up and watch QVC and order another thing that you really don't need, but to meet alone with you. See, the psalmist, the psalmist understood this. He wrote in Psalm 63, On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Maybe you're not sleeping of late because God has been waking you up to speak with you because your life is so busy and you have so many more important things to do than to listen to God privately and personally that he's got to wake you up. Or maybe you're just running. 
You deliberately fill your world with noise and mayhem and complain about it 10 times a day, and yet you're really seeking it because you know full well that what the alternative is, is coming face to face with God. And in your present situation and with your present lifestyle, you don't want any part of that. You know, sometimes we think that God only speaks in a still, small voice, and often he does. But other times he shouts to us, like in a time of crisis, since that is the only way he can get us to stop long enough to even acknowledge his presence. It could be that the crisis you find yourself in this morning means that God has forcibly entered your busy world, has grabbed you around the shoulders, because the time for change and a new vision is now. It's in your life right now. There's no more time to waste. And he's about to work in a large way in your life. I must be willing to see crises as an opening for change. A change that begins when I meet with him alone. Transformation we need and a new vision often begins when we meet with God alone. Well, at any rate, Jacob was alone and he had an encounter with a man. This is, this is great. I got to tell you this, this story. Verse 24 says this. So Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Hosea chapter 12 tells us that the man was a visitor from heaven. I personally believe it was the Lord, that it was the same visitor that visited Abraham back in chapter 18 of Genesis. It was the same one who John 1.14 said was the word made flesh and lived among men for a time. See, I, I believe it was the pre-incarnate Christ. And we read of this very strange encounter between the man, the angel, the Lord, and Jacob. They have a wrestling match, a wrestling match, a title match worthy of pay-per-view. I mean, what, you're just, what is going on here? Now, now, listen, think of this. All of his life, Jacob was trying to jump the guy ahead of him. All of his life, Jacob had been wrestling, battling for a blessing. He thought he would get it uh, when his father blessed him. That's why he used extraordinarily deceptive means to steal it from his brother. But that didn't do it for him. He thought he had it when he married the beautiful, gorgeous Rachel. But his life continued to be plagued by insecurity and problems. His life continued to be a titanic wrestling match. Jacob early on thought that his main battle was with his father, Isaac, who favored his brother. He was the one who, was, who handicapped me in my life. Then, after that, he thought it was his brother Esau. You know, my whole life has been tainted by my stupid brother. He's the reason I've, uh, you know, not been able to get everything in life that I wanted. He's the one who has come between me and my family and the life I always wanted. Then later, after he takes off running for his life from his brother, and he settles among extended family members far, far away, he thinks it's Laban his unscrupulous father-in-law, who's always battling with him, who is keeping him down, always keeping him down. Go read the story in Genesis chapter 29 and after. But it wasn't Isaac. It wasn't Esau. 
It wasn't Laban. So who was Jacob really fighting? Who was he wrestling with? It was God. His opponent says, basically, you know, I'm the one you've been wrestling with all your life, Jacob. You think the great battle of your life is going to take place a few hours from now when the sun comes up and you face your brother and his army? No. Your great battle will not be with them. It's now. It's right here with me. I'm the one, Jacob, who has been, you've been wrestling with your entire life. And unless and until you realize that, Jacob, you will never have the life you wanted and you will never be the person I called you to be a long, long time ago. See, Jacob was never convinced of his own beauty and his own worth and his own value. So he was always out there wrestling with everybody, trying to get ahead of them as a way of trying to fill that great need and that great hole in his life. So it's not, listen, it's not that Jacob didn't believe in God. It's not that he didn't know him in a certain way. But as one commentator wrote, all his life, Jacob had tried to use God as a means to an end. 20 years before on his journey away from home, he stopped along the way and had a dream that he saw a stairway to heaven. I feel a song coming on for you older folks. No, I won't. Um, he, he, he saw in this dream a stairway to heaven with angels ascending and descending on it and God telling him that the land which he la- was laying on that very night would be his and his descendants' inheritance from which all the nations of the earth would one day be blessed. He told him that. And Jacob right then and there makes a vow. And he says, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. If you help me, then you're going to be my God and I'll serve you. I'll I'll even give you some money. (laughs) There's the blessing. Okay, there's the blessing I want, God. I I, I want this blessing. Can, Can you help me? Can you help me get it? Yes or no? See, God wanted so much more for Jacob than to be his personal assistant. We're back to the match. Remember the match, the wrestling match? A couple of things. It says, when the man saw, he could not overpower him. Remember that was read just a little while ago? When the man saw, he could not overpower him. And you go, wait a minute, time out. You said this was God. How can God not overpower a man? How can Jacob be be too strong for God? And yet, it was true. He could not overpower him. If he was ever going to bring about the changes in Jacob's life that he so desperately needed, he couldn't overpower even wrestling with God then. If he wanted to happen what needed to happen for Jacob, I'm speaking about the Lord now, this wrestler. If he wanted to happen what needed to happen for Jacob to have a a life-altering encounter with the Almighty God, then he, God, needed to purposefully, gracefully, and almost incomprehensibly limit himself. You know, when my kids were little, uh, 
they always wanted to wrestle. They, they loved wrestling with me. And uh, so we'd get on the bed or we'd get on the floor and we'd, we'd start to, you know, grapple. Now, in absolute terms, I could have picked them up and thrown them across the room anytime I wanted to. But in order to hold them close and deeper our experience of fun and just being together, I didn't use all my relatively immense advantage and power that I had over them. Sometimes I would get on top of them and then literally let them throw me off and I would be rolled over to the side in a heap. See, I made myself weak. I could have destroyed my eight-year-old child anytime I wanted, if I really wanted to, but I made myself weak. God made himself weak so that he could not overpower Jacob. Because if he had won, he would not have gotten what he really wanted, a changed heart. If he won, he would have lost. But he lost so he could win the ultimate prize, Jacob's heart. You know who understood this concept? The Apostle Paul. He wrote in Philippians chapter 2, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. God wants so much to reach us, to let us know his compassion and love, to change us into trophies of grace, to be displayed before a needy world, that he is even willing to go to extreme measures, really extreme measures, to do so. Sometimes, sometimes he's even willing to limit his power, put on flesh, and get down in the dirt with one who needs to go to the next level. A new vision from God often will not come until we realize who our real opponent has been all along. What Jacob did not realize was that it wasn't dad who he was grappling with. It wasn't brother Esau or Laban, his father-in-law, or life in general. It was God. A God who is going to extreme, humiliating measures to reach out to him. Transformation and a new vision can only begin when we recognize who we've been wrestling with all along. So in the course of the night, (laughs) in the midst of the battle, something happens to change Jacob forever. Verse 25 says this, when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched and he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. Now, all right, listen, remember something. Up until now, Jacob doesn't really know who he's wrestling with. He he, he doesn't know who, who this guy is. But then his opponent does something. The text says he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, just lightly touched it. 
and Jacob became permanently disabled. All, all this wrestling, all this, you know, down in the mat, and then this guy gets on top of him, and they're grappling. And all of a sudden now, after hours of, of it sounds like hours of wrestling, he goes, boop, and, and he's disabled. He, he, didn't, he didn't pick up a huge rock and smash it on his hip. He just touched it. And all at once, listen, all at once, Jacob realizes that this was not a mere mortal. What's more, whoever this is, probably could have touched my hip two hours ago and done the same damage and done the same devastation to me then as now. And as his side is seared with pain and he's holding on for dear life, the man says to him, let me go. And Jacob says to him, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The change I need will come when I decide to let go of everything but Christ. As soon as Jacob's hip exploded, you know, the natural thing, you would think, the natural thing would, would be to let go and call 911 and then apply for disability, but he doesn't. Why? Because Jacob was still looking for a blessing in his life. And now he realized that the one who he held in a death grip, was the only one who would ever be able to deliver it to him. You know, God can end your suffering today. He could snap his fingers, and guess what? It would be done. But he, in effect, holds himself back from his natural desire to rescue his own. And, and like a parent who watches her child struggle through some crisis, knows that on the other end will come immeasurable benefit, so they don't rush in with the cash that they could rush in with. They don't, they don't beat up the bully. They don't try to work the system to make it all come out right for baby. Because they know at the other end of the struggle will be deliverance. And in a much greater way, that will be true for you if you hold on to him. You know, people think that once they come to Christ, the battle's won, the victory's secured. And in a way, in a real way, it is. Your eternal destiny is secured. There, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But I have found that truth comes to us in fits and starts. It comes in small bites. It comes to us one step at a time. You have so much further to go until your faith becomes one that trusts in the midst of the darkness, remains through the heartache of despair, and holds on for dear life when all seems lost. God wants so much to reach us, to let us know his compassion and his love, to, to, to change us into trophies of grace to be displayed before a needy world, that he's even willing to go to extreme measures to do so. He was even willing to limit his power, put on flesh, and get down in the mud with one who needs to go to the next level. You know, people have a deep desire for blessing and for peace, and yet seem to experience just the opposite so often. As Jacob limped away from the great crisis experienced in his life, the Bible seems to indicate that he was a different man a blessed man, because he had finally and forever committed everything to God. 
You know, God even changed his name to commemorate the event. A temporary fix, a, a common experience, as wonderful as this might be with brothers and sisters, won't do it. Until we say, this is it. I'm not retreating. I'm not falling back. I'm not running to the carnal comfort that I have always made my way back to, but I'm determined this time to commit all I have to God's care and purposes in my life. Until we do that, we will never experience the blessing that we have so desperately craved. The change I need will come when I decide to let go of everything but Christ. I'm holding on with both arms, and Lord, I will not let you go until you turn my burden into blessing. Bring the change that I so desperately need. Jesus Christ literally ran from the blessing of the Father and the cross so that we could gain the blessing. God wants so much to reach us in a way that we have never experienced before. He wants us to truly know his love and his mercy and his compassion and to make us into finished objects of his grace, in part so that a restless, hurting, borderline, panicked world can come to know him. See, the change I need will come when I decide to let go of everything but Christ. Jacob is a picture of what we can be. His change can be our change. That is the vision that we can all grab a hold of. Father, we, we do want to grab a hold of that. We recognize that we do need change. We, we, we need transformation. God, I pray that you would put a vision of change in our hearts and in our minds, and that this year, over the next months, oh God, through the end of 2021 and into 2022, you will make us into different people, people who will let go of everything but Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.